All right, welcome to the Medicine Podcast. This is Dr. Christopher Hernandez, your host, and today I'm going to begin a multi-part hematology-oncology series. Okay, so this episode is a little different from the others I've done so far. Instead of discussing one topic in detail, I'm going to sequentially cover various pathologies seen in the field of hematology, just mentioning high-yield points that are important to remember. I'm doing this because I'm trying to get a handle on this field, and these are things I want to make sure I remember. If you're a resident or a medical student or anyone who has an interest in getting these things right, then this material may be useful to you as well. So let's get started. Again, I'm only going to be pointing out the basic, most high-yield facts. Obviously, there's more to know about each of these diseases and disorders. Let's begin with aplastic anemia. Perhaps the most important thing to realize about aplastic anemia is that the name is misleading and that you virtually always see pancytopenia, not just anemia. The anemia is going to be non-hemolytic with a low retic count because the whole point is that your bone marrow is not productive. You see hypocellularity of the bone marrow on biopsy. You can also see some fatty infiltration, which just looks like big white bubbles on the slide where the fat was washed out during prep. EPO will be increased, appropriately, but the retic count will still be low. The condition is usually caused by drugs, viral infection, or an autoimmune process. The mnemonic and first aid for the drugs that can cause aplastic anemia is can't make new blood cells properly, which I think is pretty clever. Each of those words stands for a different drug, and the list is carbamazepine, methimazole, NSAIDs, benzene, chloramphenicol, and propothiouracil. So you'll notice that both of the hyperthyroidism drugs are in there, methimazole and PTU, the thioamide drugs. So that, of course, is why we stop the drugs and check a CBC if the patient develops a cough or a fever, as discussed in my last episode. Maybe they're having an aplastic crisis. The highest yield viral agent to associate with aplastic anemia is probably parvovirus B19, but HIV, EBV, and the hepatitis viruses are also associated, especially hep B. Treatment can involve immunosuppression, such as with antithymocyte globulin or cyclosporin, or if the patient is below 50 and has a donor, allogeneic hematopoietic stem cell transplantation. Obviously, if there's an offending agent, you stop that drug. And that's all I'm going to say about aplastic anemia. Let's move on to the next condition. The next condition is paroxysmal nocturnal hemoglobinuria, or PNH. Let's start with a discussion of the name. Apparently, the nocturnal part of the name has to do with the notion that during sleep, people tend to hypoventilate a bit, and so become somewhat more acidotic, and therefore more predisposed to episodes of hemolysis. PNH patients have low-level hemolysis at baseline, but during episodes, or paroxysms, of increased hemolysis, the urine becomes discolored due to the presence of hemoglobin and hemosiderin. This hemoglobinuria 
is variously described as red or pink or just dark urine. It's often noticed in the morning, which is also often when urine is just more concentrated anyway. So that explains the name. The pathology here has to do with the complement system, and the key factoid to remember is that, generally due to an acquired mutation in a hematopoietic stem cell, PNH patients lack CD55 and CD59 on their red blood cells. Again, flow cytometry will reveal the absence of CD55 and CD59. These proteins are normally protective against the complement system being activated. Without them, you get complement-mediated intravascular hemolysis. Note that here, as in aplastic anemia, you often see pancytopenia, not just a Coombs-negative hemolytic anemia. Clotting is also very often a big problem in this disease, and not necessarily just your standard venous thrombosis of the legs, Atypical locations such as hepatic, portal, mesenteric, or cerebral veins will often be found to have clot. So when you see weird clots in the setting of pancytopenia, including low platelets, PNH is on your differential. There's a relatively new treatment for this disease, echolizumab, brand name Soliris, which is one of the most expensive drugs in the world. I suppose it's been available for about 10 years now. Severe Neisseria meningitidis, aka meningococcus infection, is an interesting known side effect of echolizumab treatment, and patients are actually vaccinated against meningococcal infection before treatment with echolizumab begins. Okay, that's it for PNH. So far, we've done aplastic anemia and paroxysmal nocturnal hemoglobinuria. Let's move on to the next. Next, let's touch on pure red cell aplasia. In this case, the name is not misleading. RBCs are decreased while platelets and white blood cells are normal. Retic count is also low, and if you do a bone marrow biopsy, which technically is required for the diagnosis, you see basically a total absence of erythroid precursors. There are several known causes of acquired pure red cell aplasia. Parvovirus is again an important cause, the virus is actually cytotoxic to erythrocyte precursors in the bone marrow, but I think thymoma is one of the more high-yield associations to keep in mind for pure red cell aplasia. It's a somewhat rare cause, but if you do find a thymoma, thymectomy is part of the treatment. Another interesting etiology is when patients receiving epoetin, or one of the exogenous forms of the epo molecule, usually in the setting of chronic kidney disease, develop antibodies against the EPO molecule, and develop pure red cell aplasia as a result. Lastly, you sometimes see pure red cell aplasia in the setting of various cancers, especially large granular lymphocytic leukemia. You may see it as a consequence of certain drugs like phenytoin, and of course it is often simply idiopathic. Idiopathic pure red cell aplasia is typically immunologically mediated and treated accordingly that is, with things like prednisone, cyclosporin, and cyclophosphamide. Alright, now let's move on to isolated neutropenia, which we see all the time in the hospital. The first step is to grade the severity, because clinically significant infections are most likely to occur in severe neutropenia, when the white count is less than 500. 
the 500 to 1000 range is considered moderate neutropenia, and the 1000 to 1500 range is mild neutropenia. Sometimes isolated neutropenia is a congenital condition, as in benign ethnic neutropenia. This is seen in black patients and patients of Mediterranean descent. These patients actually have good neutrophil reserve, so if they're asymptomatic and it's a mild neutropenia discovered incidentally, no treatment is needed. There's also a congenital variant called cyclic neutropenia, where patients become neutropenic every two to five weeks, and they can actually get so neutropenic during those cycles that they develop recurrent infections. So that's a pretty miserable pattern. But those are rare conditions. More often, neutropenia is seen secondary to infection, actually, or to a rheumatologic disorder like lupus or rheumatoid arthritis, and will improve with treatment of the underlying condition. Of note, if you see neutropenia and splenomegaly in rheumatoid arthritis, that triad, neutropenia, splenomegaly, and RA, is referred to as Felty syndrome. It gets its own name because it's such a severe form of RA, with susceptibility to infection greatly increased. Okay, to finish our discussion of etiologies of neutropenia, as always, it can also happen secondary to a drug, and once again, the culprit agents are familiar. Carbamazepine, phenytoin, PTU, NSAIDs, various chemotherapies, as well as cephalosporins, Bactrim, and certain psychotropic drugs. The mnemonic Miami can be used to investigate etiologies. Those letters stand for medication, infection, autoimmune, malignancy, and inflammation. Regarding treatment of neutropenia, if a neutrophil bump is really needed, for example in Felty syndrome, or anytime the patient is in the hospital and doing poorly, granulocyte colony stimulating factor, GCSF, treatments like Neupogen and Granix are available. Oh, and one last interesting etiology for neutropenia, Levamisole. Levamisole has an interesting history. It's a legitimate anti-helminthic drug. It's used to treat parasitic worm infections like Ascariasis and hookworm, sometimes for humans, I think, but definitely for livestock. But these days, it's perhaps more famous for its use in the adulteration of cocaine. It's a very commonly used cutting agent because it not only adds bulk and weight to the cocaine, but it actually makes it appear more pure somehow, and they say it may even enhance the high in some way. Plus, it passes street purity tests. So, for all of these reasons, levamisole is apparently present in the vast majority of the national cocaine supply, and it can cause a severe neutropenia. So that makes for a timely test question, I think. But okay, let's keep moving. So far, we've covered three bone marrow failure syndromes, aplastic anemia, pure red cell aplasia, and isolated neutropenia, as well as one Coombs-negative hemolytic anemia, paroxysmal nocturnal hemoglobinuria, or PNH. Let's discuss one more topic in this episode, myelodysplastic syndrome, or MDS, and then call it a day. In myelodysplastic syndrome, hematopoiesis is ineffective, leading to a hypercellular bone marrow but peripheral cytopenias. The cause is typically idiopathic, but thought to be epigenetic 
rather than involving any alteration in cellular DNA itself. Basically, after a long life of epigenetic alterations, methylations, histone deacetylations, your bone marrow is old and confused, it's trying as hard as it can, but its output is poor. Usually, what you see is an older adult with a macrocytic anemia, and maybe another line affected as well, maybe a leukopenia or a thrombocytopenia. You do a smear, and you see dysplastic cells, such as a hypogranular neutrophil with a dysplastic nucleus or a nucleated erythrocyte. You may see a neutrophil with a bilobed nucleus, which would be the pseudo-Pelger-Hewitt anomaly. Whatever it is, you see something out of the ordinary, so you do a bone marrow biopsy, which is diagnostic. The bone marrow biopsy will also help prognosticate. The more blasts there are, the higher the mortality, according to the IPSS, or the International Prognostic Scoring System. The real worry here is that MDS will transform into AML, or acute myeloid leukemia. So that's the typical presentation and etiology. There are secondary causes of myelodysplastic syndrome as well. It can be the result of chemotherapy, or radiation, or exposure to benzene, etc. And of course, there are reversible causes of dysplasia that must be ruled out, such as B12, folate, or copper deficiency, as well as certain infections and medications like HIV and alcohol, that most popular of medications. Treatment for MDS is somewhat interesting. The goals of treatment are on the one hand to address symptomatic cytopenias, and on the other hand to reduce the risk of progression to AML. Symptomatic anemias can be treated in the usual way. Transfusions as needed, EPO can be helpful. If the patient rarely requires transfusions, then you can leave it at that. But if they're requiring frequent transfusions, it's time to think about other treatment options in order to improve quality of life and decrease problems with transfusion-associated iron overload and alloimmunization. If the patient has a 5Q deletion, Lenalidomide, which is also used in the treatment of multiple myeloma, is first line to help reduce the need for transfusion. Again, give lenalidomide for patients with evidence of chromosome 5Q deletion in cytogenetic testing as it results in transfusion independence for more than half of such patients. All MDS patients may be eligible for treatment with the hypomethylating agents azacitidine and decitabine, which are basically identical drugs, differing only by one hydroxyl group. Both were apparently first synthesized in Czechoslovakia, according to Wikipedia. These drugs help reduce the need for transfusion, and they help reduce the risk of transformation to AML, which is great. However, they may also reduce blood counts at first, and they may take up to six months to show an effect. Okay, the last thing I'll say about myelodysplastic syndrome is that the only curative treatment is stem cell transplantation, which is typically reserved for younger patients with higher risk disease. Alright, so that was our first batch of topics from hematology oncology. We covered aplastic anemia, paroxysmal nocturnal hemoglobinuria, pure red cell aplasia, isolated neutropenia, and myelodysplastic syndrome. I'm not exactly sure when I'm going to do another batch of topics, 
but hopefully it will be sooner rather than later. As always, please feel free to email me with questions, feedback, or comments at themedicinepodcast at gmail.com. The podcast should be available on many different podcasting platforms by now, so if you like the show, please do leave a rating or a review. It will help other listeners to find it. All right then, see you next time. Thank you.